Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is David Elsie. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. You've probably watched some of them already, many of them perhaps, but if you haven't, um, if this is new to you, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and you'll see 325 of them at this count archived under the past interviews menu. There's also other things to explore, including a donate button, by virtue of which we're able to support this whole enterprise. You may know David already from his participation in the Sophia University panel discussion that we did in October. He was the mime guy who stood up and did a little mime thing. But he's not only a mime guy, he's a teacher and a coach, and uh, here's a little blurb from the back of his book. David Elsey has inspired transformation through teaching and performance for over a quarter of a million people worldwide. He is a guest faculty member at the renowned Omega Institute and a contributor with Deepak Chopra and Jack Canfield to the book Stepping Stones to Success. So David lives in New York City and I have known him for quite a few years now because he comes to the Science and Non-Duality Conference every year and uh, does some really brilliant stuff. Uh, and he did some things this year which really amazed me and I think we'll be talking about that and we'll probably actually paste some clips of it into this interview later on for, for those, to watch, those who are watching later on to watch. <laughs> that makes sense. So David, welcome and thanks for doing thanks. this. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be with you. So as I understand from having read your book, The Ocean of Now, you've been at this stuff for a long time and by this stuff I mean both mime and spiritual aspiration and you've blended the two together rather nicely in a fairly unique way. I don't know too many people who've done that. So which came first, the, the chicken or the egg? The mime or the egg? <laughs> um, the mimed egg came first. The reason I'm only hesitant, Rick, is because it really feels like it was integral since I was born. And when I learned what mime really is in terms of the way I learned it, I believe it's a conceptual approach to all that's happening in our existence. And, and let me be more specific, because that's a pretty broad statement. When I was born and throughout school, I was always physical. I would rather be doing recess or gym or theater or music, anything that was physical, more than homework. My mom always says she doesn't understand how I got through school. She says, basically, you charm the teachers. So I had to give that up at some point because it doesn't actually get you grades in the end. <laughs> Depends on the teachers. Because exactly. And you can't guarantee which ones. So you got to learn to actually be accountable for your homework. But the point is that I've always been in my body, as we all have, but it's been my place of exploration of life. How do I master this? How do I do this with every finger without one getting caught? How do I, since I was a child, I was performing in my front room and my, even when I was three, I was putting on my dad's clothes and looked funny, but I loved how people laughed. It was just great to experience. So the body and movement has been a part of my life since the beginning. That's why I say this is an interesting answer to your question. And then uh, when I was 17, I studied mime with a teacher who taught using principles of Kabbalah, the simple ones, not numerology and, and astrology, but the simple ones, the most simple one, which is that in emptiness arises form that returns to emptiness. So for the mime, this space between you or the camera and I appears to be empty, but to the artist, taught as I was taught, the mime, I can create anything that's in here that wasn't there before and then suddenly it's not there. Or there's a glass here, <laughs> it wasn't there, now it is. And in your mind you perceive it 
but then it disappears. It's the same as the transiency of life itself, isn't it? So I learn mime from that perspective, and then each Hebrew letter, beautifully taught, has a universal principle in it and a vibration and a frequency to it. So Aleph, for instance, is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and Aleph represents, literally in the way it sounds coming from nothing, in the air, so there's nothing in the air and vibration of the chords, and then al, and then the tongue touches the roof, so there's contact between two, there's the appearance of duality, al, and then it goes into form, aleph, into the world, aleph. So then he would, Samuel Avatol was my teacher, and he taught at his school called Le Centre du Silence. Your mind teacher, yeah. Yeah, my mind teacher, and Kabbalah teacher, his parents were, his dad were rabbis, and his grandfather, I mean, is down the lineage. And so he continued the teaching, but he used mime to teach. And what I was going to say was that when I learned this, it made me question at 17 years old, when I'm standing in an empty stage, how capable am I of producing the universe for others to see? Am I just a man or am I the bird and the air and the leaf and the water and the fish? You know, how open and unlimited limited can my mind be to perform? Did and you rock a, all that when you were 17, or are you much better able to articulate it now? Yeah, a B of the A and B there, B definitely. In yeah. fact, when he was teaching me, he thought he saw enough in me to put me in his show that summer after one seminar, which was great. It was per All things are perfect, right? But while I was rehearsing, I'm supposed to step into a bathtub, because in the bathtub, as I'm, this was something I wrote, as I'm resting, I fall into water and I go into this whole this whole universe of water, and then I wake up again and I'm in my bathtub. But just stepping into the bathtub, I'd be doing it. And he's about this tall, and he's French with, I mean, he has a French accent, with big, he's Jewish hair and bald hair like me. And he would say, no, David, that's not it. You're doing it. Don't do it. Just do it. You know, he was trying to teach me the concept of being a non-doer, which right. 17 grokking doesn't happen. Yeah, interesting. A lot of learning back then. Hey, I just want to throw in the point that um, Sanskrit has the same thing that you just mentioned that, was it Hebrew? Or mm -hmm. it does, where there's said to be this name and form correlation between the sound of letters and words and the forms with which they correspond. So that, for instance, the name for, the, the name for apple, whatever that may be, would somehow, in a vibratory way, correspond with the actual vibrations of an apple. And yeah. there's this whole cosmology that's explained where the universe actually arises out of sound and the, the, the first verse of the Vedas sequentially unfolds the manifestation of the universe and all kinds of stuff. So it's interesting that the, the uh, Jewish tradition has the same way of thinking. With Sanskrit, yeah, yeah, it's the same and it makes perfect sense. There's no mystery to it. If everything is a vibratory frequency or a light frequency, or then it makes sense, and, and one of the things Samuel said was, don't speak too much, because you'll use up your words. Mm. Jokingly, he was saying, be efficient, be clear and concise with what you're wanting to say, and also what you're wanting to perform as a performer. So he was teaching us, if we want to show that there's a solid object here, this is enough. I don't have to go, right, you know, which is what a lot of... It. Right, which a lot, of, a lot of pantomimes would learn to do because they weren't trained in this more centered approach. So actually pantomime got a bad, bad rap after a while because there were a lot of people not mastering their body and their technique but trying to do little things with, with way too much and it's yeah, hard yeah. to watch. 
not adhering to nature's principle of least effort and least action. Simplicity. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that mime and spirituality were very much intertwined for you. And, um, but I have a suspicion, I may be wrong, that initially they weren't, that you thought, I'm going to be a mime guy. And then somehow your spiritual aspirations began to blossom and become more, more clear to you. Is that true or no? Were they really intertwined from the outset? Well, they were intertwined in terms of the mime work because Samuel... He taught it that way. Yeah, and he introduces and invites you to attend based on that. I see. Okay. So you don't really begin working with him unless you already are looking at the universe in some kind of cosmic questioning way. So at so, that stage of the game, was mime training your spiritual practice essentially, or did you supplement it with meditation or some such thing? Yeah, at 17 I didn't really have a spiritual practice. I was just on the quest. Mm-hmm. You know, the quest of wanting to understand. This I do know since childhood was I've always... I've always been drawn to understand what's behind the appearance. Mm. I had an experience when I was 14 where I was standing on Texas land where my family owned some, had been involved with a ranch for a while. And it was nighttime and the Texas sky is like the Montana sky mm. or the sky anywhere where there's no lights. It's like a blanket of stars from horizon to horizon, especially without mountains. And in a moment when I was 14 and I was standing there one nighttime all alone, I felt some kind of really life-changing sense of presence looking at me from the sky. And I just had a sense of some intelligence, some sentiency of the universe. And it scared me. I got really scared because I felt how tiny and insignificant I was. And then at the same time, it was life-changing because I really felt the enormity of it. I felt a felt sense of the unlimited sense of being. And what scared me about it was it made me realize that I'd been helping a friend being a friend to someone who's wanted to commit suicide in early days of high school. And I was good as a listener. And I always felt I was a good listener and good presence. But I realized I smiled a lot, you know, kind of this artificial smile. They, they like me. Yeah, like me. A lot of that, a lot yeah. of wanting approval. And when I had this experience, I realized that that facade was a facade. And it made me really, really afraid and I started crying and sobbing. So for about an hour, I was just sobbing because I had no clue about what I was without that. At, you know, 14 years of this little body suddenly being told, well, you're not anything that you thought. It, it's awkward. So this is out under the stars you started sobbing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And then I walked home just down the hill and my sisters didn't know what was going on. And they sat with me by the bed and my mom. And, and it was really moving because they were loving. There was just love there. And I began to settle and then begin to write prose and poetry about it. And the first words that came were, life is a puzzle, each person to his place, but only do you fit when you show your real face. So don't put a mask in your place in the puzzle because it isn't going to fit at all. Hmm. And uh, I wrote a little music to it. And so from then on, it wasn't like I had a transformation that shifted everything. It's just that it gave me the understanding, which has stayed with me my whole life, that underneath the surface of whatever I'm experiencing, there is this background which is unshakable for me. Even though I felt human and I felt 14 years old and I had crushes and I had broken hearts and there was something in the background which has now come to the foreground more. So that's how I would say my journey has been. And then it became my teachings. I learned a technique called the Sedona method, which is a way to dissolve thoughts and emotionality to reveal their essential nature which again is consciousness or truth 
So that technique has been an integral part of what I've been teaching and coaching with, in addition to self-inquiry and yeah. investigation. That's nice that you got so serious at such a young age. When, when I was 14, I was primarily worried about whether I looked cool and how good a drummer I was and things like ah, that. And, nice. You know, girlfriends and, and whatnot. It took me a few years to sort of get that glimpse that you just well, I was to. I was too, though. I mean, that kept going. Yeah. But what was new was this groundedness behind it, which kind of has blossomed over time. Yeah, that's nice. I thought it was real sweet, the, the story you told in uh, Ocean of Now about, well, maybe we're skipping ahead, but um, so don't let me do that if we are, but that story you told about being in the hospital with that boy who was dying, and I guess you've done a lot of work in hospitals and stuff like that, sort of a, a Patch Adams kind of a guy. Uh, yeah, 15 years. Yeah, you feel like telling that? Sure, sure. Well, it's similar to the idea of where I learned mine, because what you're referring to is the Big Apple Circus in New York has this incredible program called the Clown Care Program. And it's similar to Patch Adams. It was created by Michael Christensen, who knows of Patch. And his son died of cancer. I mean, excuse me, Michael's, Michael's brother. Son. Oh, Michael's brother. Michael's brother died of cancer. And he was torn. He was torn into bits about it. And he prayed and he said, what do I do? You know, I'm a clown. I, I've traveled to Europe. I'm... You know, I can do this stuff, but my brother just died. What is this all about? And the message was, make this easier for others. And so he, the Big Apple Circus was a creation of his with a partner, and he decided to create a clown program where doctor clowns or mimes or musicians or magicians or actors, entertainers learn to work in hospitals to make life lighter for those with life-threatening diseases or any anything in a hospital. So he created the clown care program. And for 15 years, I was a clown doctor. We're trained to be to work in hand in hand with the staff at a hospital, but also how to work in the room because it's a very different world in the hospital. People are very vulnerable. Children, you know, who have tubes or whatever, when you poke your head in and you go, hey, that may be too much. So we've learned how to be what I call in the moment. I put it in the book, The Ocean of Now, because when I peek in the door and go, would you like a visit? And I have the suggestion of clown. I don't, it's not brash. You have a red nose or anything like that? Or? Little tiny red nose. You can paint it blue. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. And I have a little button. You know, you clown eyes your doctor's jacket. So I have a button that said, uh, yes, I'm pregnant. And uh, I've been trying a long time. It's a long journey. So we always brought humor, but we would peek. And in that moment of peeking, we had to assess and really be available to have no attachment to anything going in, not going in. If they said, no, don't come in, that'd be fine. Maybe we'd drop our hat and spend 10 minutes trying to get our hat off the floor, saying, sorry, I'm leaving. I just, let me get my hat. <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't attached to them liking us. So we had to really learn to listen and be inspired every second with what's best. A joke, physical comedy, shtick. We had bedpans, you know, in the room that were clean and we'd put them on the hat and say, bed pandemonium, you know. <laughs> Whatever we could, but the point was, there was one guy, a young guy who was 16, who had cancer. He was a Hasidic Jewish young teenager. A nurse came running to us and said, um, me, we always worked in partners. And to me and my doctor, Mensch, is my partner friend, uh, Kenny Raskin. And she said, uh, Solomon wants to see you. And we loved Solomon for four years. And we went back and looked in the room, and it was dark. And his father with Peas and the beard and his mother with the 
scarf and they were standing by the side of the bed his mom was crying and uh, we walked in really slowly because Solomon had asked for us but he was really almost unconscious yellow skin bones protruding and absolutely quiet and his eyes were staring at the ceiling his breath was barely happening so in that moment we really had to assess what is being called for here and so we were very quiet you know we really didn't say much and then we remembered he loved this song and my partner could play the flute the plastic little flute recorders he could play them out of his nose and solomon loved this and i would sing i'm a little teapot short and stout here's my handle here's my spout when i get all steamed up then i shout sock it to me baby let it all hang out <laughs> and he always loved that so we thought why not so we did that and we finished and nothing happened and we thought okay well that was our gift but i had this intuition as we were turning i looked at him and his eyes his eyes and his face and his mom was crying at this point his his eyes went like this for those listening on audio david just did a little gradual smile yeah and a little lightning of the eyes mm -hmm. it still touches me because I thought he was there the whole time. You know, we assume that people aren't there, but he was absolutely present. And I thought, excellent, excellent. So we left. And about five minutes later, the, uh, the nurse ran to us and told him that he had passed. He had died. And the value of that to me was to recognize how important we are in simple ways to each other. You know, our mere loving presence can be transformative or end a life in a positive way before the life is over. You know, so we take for granted this simplicity of being present. And I think it's one of the most powerful balms for the soul, you know, powerful salves for the soul, this loving presence. It's not trying to control, you know, it's not attached to outcome. When I'm working one-on-one, -on -one, I, I honestly feel like in addition to the questions that I've learned that are useful, just being absolutely present is part of what the soul is yearning for, the soul that feels constricted and contracted in pain sometimes it just needs loving presence so in that story i think that was part of my recognition and my realization i would surmise that all those years working in hospitals also must have had a very refining influence on your heart and your ability to attune to other people you know because like even in that story you know you couldn't just barge in like a bull in a china shop and do whatever you felt like it you had to sort of tune in to the situation and do what was appropriate and it was a very delicate tender situation so it must have been you know really kind of a heart culturing mm. experience for you doing that that's a good phrase yeah. absolutely we were trained also by michael he was a real angel on this planet i mean he's still around but in his teaching of us he said as best you can when you see the physical form don't see the physical form mm see the child that's well inside yeah so you're performing no matter how you know some children were everything tumors and it would be impactful i wasn't to be really frank though i wasn't really affected by it i don't know why i think it's just been my nature it's like oh wow who look at that and it, it wouldn't change me a lot i do know that some of the clowns had children some of the the team had children and i know they were impacted more than i to see that and see children go through that but for me i would pretty much it's why i'm able to work one-on-one -on -one so comfortably with people is because i really don't see 
what's appearing as much as I hear what's behind it mm -hmm. uh, in a deeper way. It's just been my intuition since childhood, I guess. That's nice. Incidentally, you did you ever see the movie uh, Punchline with Tom Hanks and Sally Fields? Uh, no, no, I didn't. There's a movie recommendation for you. It was just there was a really sweet scene where he was doing comedy in a hospital, and uh, mm. you know, kind of a, one of his lesser-known but best movies, in my opinion. You know, it's definitely an ego check, because you can want to be funny, and if they're going through a lot, and your energy is overriding what they're giving you, it won't work, and you'll your ego will be deflated, and you'll. And this is a, a point in the interview, Rick, where I want to say something. And this has always been the case for me since childhood. Everything I see on some level is a metaphor for the deeper understanding. So when I talk about being in the hospital and this ego check, ego check, it's the same in life to me. I can want something from you and if I don't get it, my egoic sense of self wanting approval, wanting to control you or wanting whatever is going to be disappointed and contract even more. And so like in the hospital, it's the same to me as, as much as I can even do this interview or look at you and not know where this is going and feel comfortable about it. That's the spiritual practice as well to me. Yeah. Well, there's a couple nice phrases from your book that I wrote down that pertain to this. You, you say, for instance, uh, there's a life force within you that is always seeking to preserve, persevere and expand. Um, and then it guides us because it is us. And then mm -hmm. the key to success is to live from this cosmic intelligence. Spiritually, I look at this intelligence as a magnificent mystery. I am in awe of it and respect it. When I align with it or have quieted to feel its presence within me and as me, I prosper. I like this theme that of the omnipresence of intelligence and like you said a minute ago everything's a metaphor well every you know some people say the world is your guru but obviously if you if you kind of feel things this way and understand and experience things this way then nothing is arbitrary merely mechanistic material or anything else everything is just pulsating intelligence with something to teach us and to further our, our evolution because, as you say, there's this evolutionary impulse of the universe. Actually, you quoted Deepak as saying that. Yeah, yeah, he talked about it being the, I can't even remember how I said it, but the yeah, he said The static evolutionary impulse of the universe. Right, right, I love that. And it's happening right now even as the cells multiply and mm. gallons of blood is coursing through the miles of circulates. I mean, something's vitally alive, you know, whether we think so or not. I was thinking about this the other day because I was listening to Joe Dispenza on one of his videos about how his vertebrae got crushed in an accident where he was hit by a truck. And he, through his consciousness, chose to look at the reconstruction of his spine rather than with rods, with consciousness on some level. And he, in the dialogue, and he's talking about that, I was listening to how he was describing similarly to Deepak how we have gallons of blood coursing through the circulatory system. And trillions of cells and each cell has a trillion interchanges chemically within seconds and something's happening something that we can't even fathom and then we limit ourselves thinking oh I'm just this father or I'm just a kid or nobody loves me and this thought comes in and we actually imbue it with more intelligence than the trillion cells that just multiplied <laughs> right yeah it's crazy how willing we have been and it's innocent so you know I there's no judgment here, it's innocent. We didn't learn differently, but we invest in thought 
which is not even really even singular. Thought is a combination of neural pathway events, which are trillion of little light, chemical, biological boom, and it's gone. But we call it a thing, a thought, and then we invest in it. And as I invest in it, if you watch physically, and this is why I love the mime work, because it's helped me physically demonstrate principles really well. The minute I'm with you, I'm present, I'm all here, I see your eyebrows, I see the energy coming out of your eyes. But the minute a thought comes like, oh, does he like me? I actually divert my, my attention. There's still presence, but my attention goes to the thought. I'm not even with you anymore. And I'm entertaining the thought and the thought after it and the thought of why and the thought of a different color shirt would have been better. And suddenly I'm not even here. But I invest more authority in that, which really is not even substantive or locatable. It's imagined on some level more than my absolute love, which just explodes when I come back present with you in this moment. That's my experience. I'm really grateful for everything you do. And there's this new relationship to you because this intelligence then comes up and surfaces to live with consciousness. See, it's alive anyway, whether I'm focusing on thought or presence, it doesn't stop. So then this, to me, the spiritual question for all of us is, how much are we investing in the mind more than the absolute presence of awareness? And it's that spectrum. There's no final event where it's completely gone. I mean, maybe Eckhart Tolle or Byron Katie can talk about it, but you know, I'm not going to wait for a roach to crawl over my foot like Byron Katie or. You don't have to wait too long. Back. You live in New York, right? No, it's happened too many times. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's so ordinary that it doesn't do it for you. You gotta- I should something. be enlightened by now. You need a, like a cobra crawling over your foot or something, something that really? wouldn't ordinarily happen in New York. Well, you, you bring that up and I have to laugh because down in, in Texas, you know, as I progressed in my years there, we would go back every summer and, and I had this thought, okay, I'm gonna be imperturbable. I'm gonna be so free that a rattlesnake, because they exist down there, oh, yeah. comes across my path and I don't move, right? So I'm meditating up on the top of this hill one night. You know what's coming. I close my eyes and I'm meditating. I open my eyes and there's a rattlesnake, you know, about six feet in front of me. And I freak out and I roll back and I get back and go, dang it, didn't work. You know, my dream. So even the rattlesnake didn't work. But what I do know now, I mean, to bring it back to what our conversation is, the practice then is to notice, am I investing in the next thought or not? Because there will be thought. I mean, the neural pathways are built already. So there's going to be activity in the mind, thought. But what I do know experientially and what I share with, you know, anybody that wants to work with me is that it's not to not have thought. Like when your mind is absolutely still, then you're perfectly enlightened. It's to understand that thought forms will rise and fall, but they aren't who you are and they don't have to have sway over your experience. And as that understanding gets deeper, it seems to be the icing on the cake or the gift or the grace of whatever or whoever that thoughts do weaken because they see they're not going to be entertained by you. And somehow the patterning, if you want to talk about neural pathways, the little electrical impulses, if they're not happening, they literally atrophy and pathways change in the brain, etc. So there is a progressively quieter mind, but I think it's a mistake to say, I still have thoughts, so I'm not free or I'm not enlightened. That's not the point. No, I mean, I think if you didn't have thoughts, you'd be dead. In other words, if you're alive, you're going to have thoughts. I mean, I want to lift this. Although, you know, I have talked to people. Uh, there was a guy, who was it? Gary Weber, who said he hasn't had a thought since his awake awakening. 
and which was years ago. And I said, Gary, if you're planning to book a flight or you're talking to somebody and you're working on a speech or something like that, aren't those thoughts? And somehow, maybe it's our, our terminology, but he just couldn't relate to the idea of having thoughts anymore. It's just sort of like everything was so spontaneous and immediate for him that there didn't seem to be any kind of mental intermediary. Yeah, that's a really, I love this discussion. Mm -hmm. I love this because it's an interesting question. What it's, I call it's very it. It's mimey too. I mean, mime related, is it not? How so? Tell me what you mean. Well, just like when I see you do mime, for instance, I don't see you as having a lot of thoughts or as thinking, okay, here's my next move or something. I see you as being extremely spontaneous and just whatever is coming up, just you do it without um, a lot of mental activity. Yeah. Well, it depends on the performance. What you saw me do at the Science and Non-Duality Conference was a conscious attempt to be that way. I asked Ron, who you know, the technician, to put a piece of music on, and then I moved. This might be a good place for a clip. There was that, and there was the roomy thing, too, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. And actually, that quote was on my roomy page of quotes, but that specific quote, which I didn't look for, was from Nisargadatta, and okay. I didn't realize it. But the quote, nonetheless, inspired without me knowing where it was going to inspire me to create a story. So in that case, that mime, that performance was based on improvisation and spontaneous activity into a story. And that was really joyful for me. But a lot of times I've written pieces. If you were to look on my site, I have, or, or on YouTube, there's pieces that I performed that I wrote, took down. And now when I'm performing them, there'll be a moment where I go, oh shoot, what's next? All oh, right, boom. But the thing that you're talking about that you saw at the show, I mean, at the Science and Non-Duality Conference, was that. I was, I was in, like, if right now, for instance, I move without knowing, I'm not deciding anything, and yet if I let this become a story, I have no thought, seriously. I mean, even the words I have no thought weren't thought beforehand, right? There's this spontaneous, like Gary was talking about, everything's happening, I'm not thinking before I'm saying or moving which I think is how we do life anyway, and then the mind comes in after. That's how I think we experience life, with the commentary, and then we turn to the commentary and turn in, instead of the direct experience, and that's why we live in what I call a dream state. We're living the reflection upon life rather than current moment. So if I'm doing this, then suddenly I, I allow a story to come and I, I get a sense that this is like this, like a bird, so... <laughs> don't shoot it, don't shoot it. Right, right. I go there for the story, right? Whatever happened. But that happened without me planning. So I kind of understand the, what Gary's proposing is that the mind quiets because there's no habit of reflection and then recategorizing it based on our past because that's basically what thought is. Putting in another file. Oh, this movement or this reaction from Rick means to me like my father. And I've gone back in time to a file and superimposed that on the present moment and if all that dissolves, that identity, then really, literally, on some level, everything is happening without too much thinking. Mm. So I can understand his, his proposal on some level. There's a few themes that we've covered in the last few minutes that I'd like to try to tie together and perhaps extract a question from. You know, we were talking about the incredible intelligence that is all-pervading and how even what's happening in a single cell in our body, and there are trillions of them, is beyond our comprehension. And you know, we might add that if we had to consciously manage what's going on inside a, a single cell, that cell would die. And if we had to do it in all our cells, we'd be gone in a second. 
So there's this kind of vast intelligence that's, that's governing and orchestrating things. I think we would agree perhaps that essentially, ultimately, we are that intelligence, but we obviously aren't omniscient in the sense that that intelligence seems to be, just from what science tells us about the way the world works, there's this, to, to, and if you blend that with a spiritual perspective, there's the obvious sort of omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence of... Uh, you know, the intelligence governing the universe. Um, and then you, you brought in the point about quietening the mind, and uh, a quieter mind enables one to be more in tune with that intelligence. So that, although obviously we can't, you know, know everything or do everything in, in the relative creation, we can be attuned to that intelligence which does. And if we are, then our life flows with the same degree of perfection with which that intelligence governs the universe, even though we as an individual aren't responsible for governing the whole universe. Fortunately, insofar as our individuality is concerned, it flows with that same degree of perfection. So that's more of a statement than a question, but I want to just throw it out there as grist for the mill here. Yeah, I would actually, I would reframe a little bit of it in that the vocabulary is really important, and I think it's an essential part of the spiritual dialogue these days because there's a real subtle and I don't know if you meant this or you just were using words because we have to to function which both would be fine mm -hmm. but in the in the normal use of the word I need to be in and this is what I wrote in the book so I respect you using the vocabulary the more I am in tune with that intelligence the more my life moves towards success and interestingly enough for me taking someone through and for me just in terms of the understanding at some point, even that concept of me in alignment with the universe is still dualistic in nature on a subtle level, right? And so what ha makes it happen for us to feel the omnipresence of our own being is to begin to dissolve the concept of anything that I need to do in order to... But it's how I write in my book because there's a progressive nature on the spiritual path. Otherwise, anybody... Personally, I love Rupert so much because he's so eloquent and simple and clean in his very British presentation. Rupert Spira, you're referring to. Rupert Spira, I'm sorry, yes, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, he's very eloquent. I remember at the Science and Non-Duality Conference, Deepak Chopra was trying to interview him, and it was challenging. I don't know if you were there, but... I was supposed was to moderate that, and Deepak said, I, th I think I'll just do it. And then later on, Rupert's wife said, I wish you had moderated it. <laughs> anyway. I absolutely am grateful for Deepak's presence on the planet because he's integrating all forms of arts and sciences. I'm really grateful for that. What was challenging for him, and it was an innocent, innocent challenge, was that Rupert really isn't very good at commenting upon truth. And Deepak was trying to take our view of the audience and say, you know, a lot of people might wonder this, and how would you approach this? And, and he's not very good at theorizing, you know? So Rupert would say, well, I, you can't imagine how to do that because then you're wasting your time and you know what's absolutely true is you know and Deepak kept saying I know I know that's true Rupert had a hard time not just doing satsang and for that I'm grateful on some level because he remains kind of a beacon for not sacrificing or compromising an absolute understanding so this this idea of quieting the mind to be more in tune with the omnipresent universe or omnipotent omnipotent universe on some level, even that has to be questioned to the point where the, the quieting of the mind is also the quieting of the identity, identification with being separate from this absolute. So 
it's not once I do this, I become more in touch with this. It's more like, this is what I am anyway. And the only thing that happens is the mind quiets is the veils or the small sheaths begin to disappear to a misunderstanding of who I am. Subtle. I think that's good. As you probably know, the Yoga Sutra's second verse says, uh, Yoga Shitta Vritti Naroda, which is the yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And if we use the um, ocean analogy, then obviously the more chopped up the ocean is in waves, the more distinct and individuated those waves are even though they're really only water, the same water as the whole ocean. And the, the more quiet the ocean, as it calms down, the, the less you see any individuation. It's just a, a metaphor or an analogy, but I think there is something to, and there's obviously a thousand spiritual references to back it up, there is something to having a less agitated, more quiet mind, which mm -hmm. doesn't mean you can't be dynamically engaged in activity, doing whatever. But there's, there's sort of an inner quietness that gets cultured. Yeah, and it's fun, isn't it? It's, it's a question of two approaches. One is, I will quiet the mind so that I know more of the truth. And the other is, in the recognition of the truth, the mind quiets. Yeah, I, th so I prefer this, the latter myself. I do too. I mean, the I, first one is like you have little waves in a pan of water and you push on the waves trying to get them to stop. <laughs> right. You know, create more waves. Right. And, and at the same time, the, the work that I've been doing, the letting go work, the Sedona method is based on the principle of letting go. But before the principle and the technique was created, Lester Levinson, the creator of it, actually had 20 years of just proposing I am mm -hmm. as the tool, you know, like Ramana. But he, Ramana Maharshi, but he saw that the mind was too active. So he said, OK, I respect that the mind is active and in the way of this understanding. So let's give the mind something to do. So he said, okay, let me define the ego as this sense of lack and everything done to survive this sense of lack. And that if you let go of for in a nanosecond of this perception of lack, the egoic ghost disappears because you don't lack, you are the all. So he was teaching this technique for the mind's current state, but in the end he also said you have to let go of the one who's letting, letting go. So techniques can be useful on a journey. Which is what Ramana said too, actually. I mean, he, I have a quote on my computer someplace where he, he said that the, you know, the vast majority of people actually aren't ready for just the sort of direct fruition of the who am I question. He, he kind of encouraged people to do whatever preparatory things they were inclined to um, with the understanding that it takes a thorn to remove a thorn and that ultimately they're going to be dropping those things. Right. Was right. Lester a student of Ramana? No, the irony with Lester and, you know, the fun storyline with Lester is he was a scientist and an engineer living here in New York City. I think he grew up either in Brooklyn or New Jersey. I mm -hmm. can't remember. Did you study with him? No, I met him a few times towards the end of his life. Mm -hmm. But in 1952, he had his experience. He had a second heart attack. He had half a dozen ulcers. The doctor said, you're a good man, Lester, but go home. Mm -hmm. You don't have much time left. So he had a penthouse apartment overlooking Central Park. And he sat there in a chair saying, what the heck happened? And scientists, as you know, Traditionally, the, the principle of science is to study and pursue threads of understanding until there's resolution or some new knowledge. And he'd never done that with himself. So here he was about to die and he said, okay, I guess I'm the laboratory now. What, what am I made of? And he saw a lot of emotions. And over, instead of dying in a couple of weeks for three months, he sat in self-inquiry. What's the pain? What if I love instead of hate? 
what if I let this go? I'm going to die. I don't want to take it with me. You know, he was exploring. And what he discovered was each time he actually had a little transition of that perception or his approach or his perspective, his body began to feel energized. And at the th end of three months, his body was so awake that he had to walk for three days, the story goes, without stopping. Just to burn because off the he energy. Had, yeah, he had unleashed the suppressed energy and the contracted energy of all his emotionality. So he lived another 42 more years. But on that day, when he, at the end of those three days, he was in ecstasy on a certain level, this bliss of overflow. And he realized that that was tiring too. Mm. And so he asked himself, what if I even let go of holding on to my happiness? Because I don't want a piece of the pie because this bliss wasn't here before. So that means if it started, it can end. Plus, I don't in want addition any to the bliss, there were some serious blisters. There were blisters from walking too much. Right. <laughs> right. With bliss, you can get blisters if you're holding on to it, right? Because anything you hold on creates blisters. So at the end of the three days of this ecstasy and he let go of happiness, that was when he actually had the sense of disappearing egoic self, mm. disappearance of separation. So he lived 42 more years uh, with this, what he called imperturbability. But it was the letting go of the perception of a little self that revealed his life for the next. So he didn't know Ramana. That was the answer to, right, sorry, yeah. it was a long answer. That's he didn't right. know. But afterwards, he started looking for literature on what he was experiencing, this absolute truth. So Ramana was someone he recommended to read, and uh, also Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda. I want to talk about the Sedona method with you, but before we do that, I want to pick up on a point you just made, which um, I've been discussing with a, a friend or two, and that I don't totally get, and that is the, the, the cessation of a sense of personal self, or little self, as you put it. And the reason I don't totally get it, I, I can get how you know one would say, yeah, I'm a person, but I'm not only a person. In, in fact, I'm even not primarily a person. Primarily, I'm this vastness, this presence, this oceanic awareness. And secondarily, I'm this guy or this girl or whatever doing, doing different things. But, you know, I have friends who say, nah, not even that. You know, I mean, there's just a, been a complete falling away of a sense of self. Seeing happens, hearing happens. And I say, okay, what if you stub your toe? The, the pain is felt here, not by some guy in China. So there is still some localization some personalization and they talk as though there is oh i have a headache or i you know have car trouble or whatever so uh, maybe i i just have not quite wrapped my head around what they're saying and do you have any insights on that well i think there's a mistaken attempt to in a lot of ways i don't know about who you're referring to but i think in this kind of conversation quite often there's a mistaken attempt to say that when the cessation of the individual dissolves that the human experience dissolves too. I never have emotional pain. I never get upset. I never get angry. No, they wouldn't say that. They, they would okay. just say there is actually no one having them. Emotional right. pain happens. Upsetness right. happens. Anger right. happens. But it's not happening to anyone. Right. So I think that that's fine to say those words. That's my direct experience too. That even as I say, that's my direct experience too. The understanding is that there is an infinity that's speaking those exact words. Mm -hmm. That's how I perceive. But it doesn't change that I live within this full functioning world. And it is, a sense, in a sense, dreamlike because everything comes and goes. So in that sense, I equal that to a dream. But I don't take that statement to mean that it's a new identity that I have. It just seems to be the way things are functioning. I don't think my mind or my identity is fast enough to own everything that's happening in the infinite unfoldment of now. The I is the thought after that tries to own it. 
So I can't say I am this or I am that. I just know that as I say I, I am both that, infinite, and this vibration and this finger doing this. And it's all simultaneous. There's no I am that and this. It's all the same thing. It's also appearing perfectly as David interviewing with, with Rick. That's all the appearance of the one. But to dialogue about it and claim it to me is, in a sense, I'm just going to use the word useless because it can't be a philosophy or, you know, it's... Well, I wouldn't say it's a philosophy for my friends who talk this way. It's their experience. And like many other experiences, we try to understand them. We try to be able to discuss them, put words in them. Just you and I are doing that right now about things. Um, here's this quote from your book, if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? A little Jewish right. Yiddish right. Zen hu humor. Um, yeah. So I just have not totally grokked the, what yeah. their subjective experience is. Because my subjective right. experience is if I fall off my bike, which I did the other day, my knee is very painful. Oh yeah, there's pain, you know, and now I'm limping. But there's a untouched level of my life, which is beyond pain. You know, but, but there's pain in my particular knee, not in your particular right. knee. And so, I, I relate to that knee more than I do to, you know, your knee. some other guy. <laughs> my knee. My yeah, knee. your knee. So that's the actual question, my knee. I think what's being proposed is that you fall off the bike, you hurt your knee, and that's all happening. The question, the question is not, I love this stuff, because it really is investigating in real detail here. What, it's a subtle understanding, and this is where I think some shifts are available for us. When the pain happens, you can build, you can rebuild, I call it reassembling. You can reassemble a you that owns that pain and doesn't like it and resists it and, and uh, reminds him of when he was six and it happened when, you know, and, and you lost your patella because you had an operation. And suddenly that you is reestablished. And this pain takes is experienced in context of this you that's experiencing it. What I think is being implied in that conversation you're having with your friend is that the less we do that, the easier it is to experience the pain on some level. So the more we recreate or reassemble this little me, I call it just because it's not the omnipresent me, it's this perception reassembled me that's having the experience. That owner is what's being questioned here. Mm -hmm. Because we can't even find that owner, really, if I were to ask you, where is he? Where does no, he exist? No, of course exist? not. You can't find any little nugget. And the way you're describing it sounds very volitional, like, oh, we assemble it or we don't assemble it or whatever. And I would say, and you would, I think, agree that both in my experience and my friend's experience, there's no manipulation going on here. It's just the way life is spontaneously lived, in my friend's case, with without a sense of any kind of personal self or that has seems to have fallen away in my case I still feel like there is one I never like to pretend that I'm you know anything that I'm not or experiencing anything I'm not I, I, I'm obstinate in my ignorance until it has actually dissolved <laughs> well you know what's fun about this is because everything is consciousness mm -hmm. consciousness is even doing that being obstinate mm -hmm. that's consciousness too so if that's the attempt to always fix ourselves to be more awake, I think, is a mistake. That's how you experience things right now. So you do. Yeah. Oh, you, anyway. you don't need to like your friend. or But it's an important point. We struggle so much with self-judgment. Oh, I had an emotion, therefore I'm not awake or enlightened. Or The awakening or the, the enlightening, to me, is simply a sense of waking up from believing in 
this individualized history of a you. I can say I have pain and absolutely not need to spiritualize that language. I have pain. I have a cough. I had a chest cold for the last two weeks. And that's been my experience. So I'm using the vocabulary without having to divert it to say, but there's really no one here. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not suggesting or advocating that. I mean, those people drive me crazy, you know. Please pass the salt. Who wants the salt? You know, that kind of thing. But I'm just saying that with regard to people who aren't mood-making or intellectualizing or trying to spiritualize anything, there is a definite legitimate stage of experience in which they say there is no sense of a personal self anymore. And uh, I've just been trying to wrap my head around that lately. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's just purely subjective in the experience. I don't experience a lot of what I can, I can say this. I don't experience a lot of commentary anymore that I can say. Everything that's happening seems to just be happening. That seems to be my experience. When I really get suffering, it's usually because I'm reflecting a lot on something. I don't like it a lot. I judge it a lot. I think it's wrong. That's when I begin to really contract a lot. Even while I was sick in bed for about a week, there was a part of me that was grateful that my body was doing exactly what it needed to do when it was coughing. It was trying to say, I want to get rid of you. You know, give me a minute. <clears throat> and I thought, this is hard, but on some level, I don't reflect on it. It's not as much pain about it. So whether yeah. there's, there's someone there doing that, you know, that's a spiritual conversation. But mm. what I can say experientially is the mind quiets, and that's nice. Less commentary. I've heard some spiritual authorities say that Christ never suffered, to take an extreme example, because if he was who he was supposed to have been in terms of his spiritual status or attainment, his primary reality was beyond the realm of suffering, no matter what happened to his body. You know, I don't think many of us could could live up to that, but um, I suppose that's a possibility. Yeah, it depends on, again, we're creating a, a hymn that's beyond something. Mm. So all I know is that there was God, there was infinite experience, infinite existence coming into form as that experience of Christ on a cross. And there was probably really extreme pain. pain Whether he experienced it or not, to me, that's a theoretical conversation. There was probably pain. So pain to who? Right. And was there sort of this oceanic bliss that persisted despite the, the pain on some kind of relative level? I don't know. It feels like that kind of conversation is a, always it comes back to me, like as you and I look at each other's eyes and on these computers and technologies happening and people are watching and listening. This exact, this exact now is what I'm interested in. But not just the conversation, but this is actually the only thing that's happening. Everything else is commentary on this or our dialogue is perfect. That's what's happening now. In terms of any counsel or any work that I do with people one-on-one, -on -one, this exact moment is the work that I always come back to. What is here? Mm -hmm. What's here? Is there contraction? Is there a sense of fear that's connected to a story? And then we dissect until what's revealed again is presence awareness that really doesn't own the fear, but maybe it is unconditionally present with the fear, without judgment. And there's a healing in that. So... I don't get into a lot of theoretical stuff unless it, unless it returns us to this moment. Okay. So David, you mentioned the Sedona Method in your book, and you say it was quite influential in your life. And for those watching this, you might want to listen to my interview with Hale Dwoskin, who's one of the primary teachers of the Sedona Method and a good friend of David's. 
we talked about that. But funnily enough, when I interviewed Hale, he mostly seemed to want to talk about Vedanta and this um, experience he had had with Joan Harrigan at the Kundalini Care Institute in Tennessee. In any case, tell us about the Sedona Method and why it's important, why you'd like people to know about it. Well, I'll answer that and also why Hale went that direction. Because um, Lester, before he created a technique or a method, was actually talking about absolute truth. So it was Lester's original teaching. And then he noticed the mind's activity, as I said earlier in the interview, and he created some series of small questions that turn our attention to the illusory sense of lack. And, and from there on, it dissolves and reveals truth again. So he just created this interim series of questions. So the Sedona Method is really useful for me. I, at 18 years old, was driving home from a party and exploded in rage. I hit the car, the passenger seat, and yelling extremities, ex- extremities. I wasn't ex- excremi- excremi- I wasn't excremi- Arms and legs were excremi- coming excremi- out of your mouth. Yeah. It was terrible. It was really ugly. It was hard to see, too. I was like, <laughs> extreme words. Yes. I was letting out a- obscenities. Obscenities. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, see, when the mind quiet, it's hard to access sometimes. It's a problem. <laughs> so I was driving, and I was just screaming and yelling and hitting. And I'd been to a party. You know, you're 18. You're trying to fit in. You're trying to say the right things and get liked and all that. And I had done that, but some part of me said, what are you doing? You're killing yourself. You're not saying what you want to say, and you're saying what you don't mean. Who the hell are you? And I was just, it was like I was mad at myself for doing that to myself. For being false. Being false. hmm and for like 10 years, I had these explosions of rage. Our family was, you know, they were good people. So we didn't, I mean, they were nice. We had a, this tendency to be nice and caretake and um, good people, really kind souls. But we never learned about emotion, having emotions. So a lot was pent up at 18 and exploded. So for 10 years, I had this kind of time of, of explosion of anger and rage and emotionality. I never hurt anybody or put my hand through a wall and broke a hand or anything, but it was scary. The amount of emotion scared me and the energy. And so when I was 28, somebody told me about the Sedona Method and I studied it. And it was the first time in my life where I had a looking glass that I could look through at what I was afraid of and be able to approach it in a way where I still felt empowered and not disempowered by the emotion. And so it was really, really important to me. And I think for a lot of people where they feel overcome by emotion, um, to be if, and this is an important if, if they have a yearning in their heart to be free of the emotion, not just for the sake of so they can earn more money or which is valuable, but in the end, if they have a deep yearning to understand who they are, to me, the technique is really even more useful for how I use it with my clients. So it helped me. And then as I continued to read Ramana Maharshi and Robert Adams and Nisigardatta and and begin to understand the Bhagavad Gita a little bit and some ancient teachings, it began to come in alignment with, and even if I'd never read any of that, in alignment with what happened to me when I was 14, which is there's something here behind all of the appearance. Mm -hmm. And so the Sedona Method helps dissolve the appearing emotionality and and resolve to a greater sense of, of clarity and peace and proactivity as opposed to reactivity. So it's very useful. And there is a point where it's pointing to even letting go of technique per se. So it isn't meant to be, you're not supposed to fall in love with the technique and then be attached to something new. It's a means towards a deeper understanding of self.
When I was preparing for Hale's interview, I was listening to a lot of recordings of him. I think I listened to whole, some whole weekend seminar he gave, and there was a certain standard set of questions that he would go through with every point, sort of the way Byron Katie has her like four questions that she asks. Would it be useful to tell us what those questions are or how, how the Sedona method would deal with a particular person in a particular circumstance? Well, it's universal. The questions like the four questions and the turnaround are universal as well. So for Byron Katie, essentially there's four approaches and I want to explain all of them. There is a video I do on them on YouTube, but essentially one is letting go of the perception of lack. And that can be lack of love, lack of control, lack of security. Because all of these, once you let them go for a moment, because they cause the emotion. If I lack this, I get scared. If I lack this, I get angry. So when we let go at that lower level, the waves can settle down a little bit. It's like a tsunami. Tectonic plate moves, creates wave. So you let go of the want down here, and the, there's a settling. So the first is letting go of lack of control or love or security. Can it, can it be said in a nutshell how you actually accomplish that? The letting go? Yeah. First, in the teaching of it, there's a kinesthetic aspect. You actually experience letting go of a pen or a pencil. Or, it's kind of a kinesthetic proof that you can. And then you ask yourself, would you be open to, or do you have a desire to be free of it? Would you be open to being free of it if you could? And then if you had this moment in time, literally this nanosecond of looking me in the eyes, would you be willing to be free of it for a second and just see what it's like? There's a verbal exploration of it until a person, a person says, I can't, you know, I can't let it go. In my work, it's not as necessarily the work of Lester, but in my work, I actually begin to investigate the concept of a you that can't let it go. And we begin to realize that that's illusory too. So the letting go happens with time and you begin to realize it's illusory anyway, what I'm holding on to. The sensation is real, the body sensation. Anger has a lot of chemicals in it. So I'm experiencing it sensorially, but what's causing it is a perception of nobody loves me. That's illusory. That's a history. That's a memory. So once that's let go of, the emotion can settle too. How it's done is just talked through until you experience it, and then when you do, you begin to know kinesthetically what it feels like. I think you mentioned in your book that it was in a Sedona Method class, maybe with Hale, that you had some really sort of watershed breakthrough moment. Is that, you want to talk about that? I'm not sure I remember. Well, some real kind of a breakthrough where it was like an awake, your, your big capital A awakening <laughs> that happened at some point that was, you know, quite, oh. quite a memorable shift for you. Are you talking about in my book? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't with Hale. With Hale, it was with Reverend Michael Beckwith. Oh, yeah, who I yeah, yeah, that was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I studied with him for a while when I was at Agape in California, mm -hmm. his church. With Hale, the, it's been progressively watching the work over 25 years, where I would go to the retreats once a year, and watching and experiencing my own progression through that period of going to a retreat to get something. You know, I'm going to go get more awake. And then with time, the more personal work I did, the quieting of that concept of obtaining awakeness and more my experience of what I call the great disappearance, which you've heard me talk of, which I think awakening is not an awakening to something. It's a disappearance of what's not true. For me, that's much more real. And that's why the letting go or the self-inquiry, the investigation is so powerful because we're not moving from this state to this state. 
it's a disappearance which reveals the state of non-state or whatever we want to say. But that experience with Michael, we were in meditation. I was 28 years old. And there was an experience of since 14, right? This sense of omnipresent, sentient, something in the sky looking at me. In this meditation, there was a sense of the body just literally like a ghost disappearing and a trapdoor opening inside and me falling through the body into infinity and even the me disappeared. And I could still hear birds and sense the body. But that was a moment of a glimpse of consciousness or awareness that wasn't identified with the physical form. And it pointed towards that as a deep, deep truth. So it was just a glimpse. It didn't abide. It didn't persist. You know, anytime we talk about an it, it's really funny. Again, in this concept of disappearance, I can say that it began the, the unraveling of the perception of a me identified with the physical body in this material world. So it began the disintegration at a deeper level. It was another saying there's something behind all of this, again, from 14 mm -hmm. years old to 14 years later, um, that it wasn't out there now. It was actually also operating this. So that was over 30 years ago, so how's, how's it been unfolding since? I'm still trying to be awakened. <laughs> no, it's just uh, what's, what's progressed since then is, is more joy, because I think what happens is as the perceptions of limited, you know, little mean, unworthy, not loved, never this enough, never that enough, as those begin to go quiet, it's just more joy. There's more relaxation. There's more ability to be present and be of service in a sense, or at least be present to you know, to the, in the work that I do. So that's been the progression. Do you ever find yourself even now kind of gripped, trapped, stuck, you know, kind of, or do you feel like those days are gone and there's a kind of a perpetual sense of ease and you know, freedom? Yeah, two things I want to say. Uh, just to finish what I was saying before so I don't forget, Francis Lucille says something beautifully. He talks about the fragrance of the self. And I love that because it's like the fragrance of the best gourmet kitchen of all existence or non-existence wafts up into our human experience and we follow the fragrance. What I can say when I say the word progressive since I was 14 and 28 is that this knowingness is not actually progressive. It's not time and space based. So it's not like the knowingness has gone from here to here on a linear scale. The knowingness actually feels like that in which the progressive sense of experience of it being true and beyond all other experience begins to be deeper. But the actual knowingness isn't progressive. It's unfathomable and unmeasurable and not based in time. So that isn't progressive. But this human activity, knowing that's what's happening, you know, that can always be deeper. Yeah, so it would be fair to say that maybe the the appreciation of it, the attunement to it, the clarity of it, or that kind of thing is progressive, but it itself, yeah. by its very nature, by definition, couldn't be progressive. Right, and that's the celebration is progressive too. It moves me to tears quite often. I, I said to Francis, I was at a retreat once of his, and you know, I had another disappearance while I was with him, and, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I had one of those with Gangaji, and I had one of those with so-and-so, and I had one of these with Michael, and I said, Afterwards, I took him aside because I love him. He's like a friend to me, a buddy. And I said, Francis, this happened again. Does, does it ever stop? Or, like, is there a progression? Or, and he has this French accent, right? He said, David, no, the, the, the thing is that while we're in the body, there is dynamic life. 
there's progression, it never ends. He was saying yeah. that there is no end to infinity. So if we're in this realm, there's this progressive sense. And uh, that was a beautiful way for me to realize as much as I love this moment of realization, it can infinitely be deeper. It's a beautiful gift. Nice. Know? Good French accent, too. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, I impersonate Francis at his retreats. He, he gives me the right. He oh, gives yeah. me his glasses. You get up and do a little yeah. shtick with a... No shtick, it's just... <laughs> yeah, it looks like him. Incidentally, uh, for those watching live, it looks like there's about 70 people on. I don't know if the question form is working or not. We've had trouble with it, the one on the upcoming interviews page. So if you submit a question there and I don't ask it to David, go ahead and send it to rick at batgap.com and I'll ask it. So you work with people. What do you do? So it's called coaching, of course, in the vernacular. What it is basically doing is investigating and then using the Sedona method and self-inquiry and just rational approach to what appears to be real and what's not real and what that reveals more of a sense of calm, peace and presence. Uh, I work with people, CEOs, I work with mothers, I work with people going through divorce, raising single parenting, uh, people in relationship, anywhere in the world. I mean, I have clients, I've had hundreds and hundreds of clients and done thousands of hours of this investigation where someone presents an issue. Uh, I have one, I have clients who are parents, so there's always these issues around how much control to exert, how much allowance to allow, what parameters are correct, what are based in fear. And so when emotions are quieted, emotionality based on, again, fear of not surviving, fear of doing it wrong, wanting approval. When those quiet, you basically have a greater sense of what to say, how to say it, and its impact is different. Its impact is higher because if you're not infusing the commentary with covert energy, the child, like an animal, senses the covert energy as well and can relax if you're not subconsciously trying to control them they can actually listen better and not be on a defense. Same in adult relationships. Mm -hmm. So my coaching is basically to help people dismantle their unconscious habitual emotionality and perceptions of who they are to reveal a greater sense. And this is, you know, I want to say this here. I feel like it's really important on this spiritual quest um, that, that there not be this preponderance on transcendence. Because if I have a client that, you know, wants spiritual transcendence, that's fine, you can be get, be get peaceful in this moment. But if your kid's screaming and come running in, you can't say, I'm busy. You know, <laughs> yeah. you gotta say, what do you want? You wanted that for the last 12 weeks. What's up with that? Talk to me, you know, and they go, and you can go into emotionality or you can stay calm and say, okay, I get it, I get it. Sit down for a minute, let's talk about this. You know, use words, use words. You know, talk to me. It's a different energy than shut up, which is needed sometimes, I guess, if you need to be clear and strong. But the cleaner your energy is, the more impact you are and have in any, any place in your life. So that's what I do. I help people really dismantle um, unconscious emotions and unconscious thinking to become more conscious and live life from that. Yeah. I would say there's a place for transcendence, but it has to be integrated into active life. And then, right. and then it's no longer really transcendent. Um, it just uh, kind of provides a foundation upon which activity can be more successful. 
Right. Again, it's the absence of the emotionality or the historic you that thinks they can't do it. When that quiets, the I can is more strong. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. In your book, you have this section of five keys for unlocking success. The joy of living, choose your life team, find stillness beyond thinking, taste the quantum soup, and live beyond war. Do you, you want to run through those a little bit? Sure. I just noticed this, this light here. There's a... There's light and there's dark. <laughs> yeah. My hands are enlightening right now. Right. Look at that. Whoa. I'm having an experience. I know. Okay. Just watch the hand. It's a very strong Hebrew symbol. Watch right here. Now you're enlightened. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about physicality for me is everything is, is material. You know, I almost disappear. I don't know how it, how it happens in there, but this is, oh, I love this. See, everything's a metaphor. This is why I'm so in love with this idea of everything being a metaphor. So here I am thinking, I can't live my life. Nobody loves me. And I'm behind this veil thinking everything out there is that same thing as I'm thinking here. But when we, when we let go of the veil, we actually come forward, literally, into light. The light shines, warmth of the sun. We can see more clearly. That's what we're doing, is we're stepping out of darkness, metaphorically, into a stronger sense of light. Sorry, I just had to throw that in because it was such a nice addition. Yeah. And for those that listening on the audio podcast, there's this, if David leans forward, the sunlight hits his face. And if he leans back, uh, it doesn't. And that's what we're referring to here. So there's a little metaphor going on in the video. Yeah, I keep forgetting the audio. Yes, so your question was about those five things. So, yeah. again, it's perfect that you asked that right now because we can live it. Of course, who else would be more perfect than you <laughs> as conscious? So uh, those five elements. You know, so the inner work is essential. How am I unconsciously repeating my life? How am I living from reassembled perceptions of myself since childhood? So those questions have to be asked. As I dissolve them or see through them or let them go, what's here? Then you can make some choices about life that support the continued living at a higher level of consciousness. And those five things are, are ways to do that and to express higher consciousness in living. Find the things that bring you joy. Um, for instance, I love the sun, for example, right? So if we weren't on video, I would just sit and feel the warmth on my skin because I could be here forever. So that's a joy. So if I know it is, make sure I can have it when I can. Uh, so it's just a matter of supporting joy. The second one is, what's the Choose second your one? Life team. Yeah, so be conscious if you're surrounding yourself with people that don't support living with more happiness, that are used to complaining and believe everyone's to blame and the world is only bad that energy isn't going to support your sense of happiness. So just be aware, just be aware of who you're surrounding yourself with. And if you're thinking about changing, have honest conversations. You know, it's part of your strengthening and grounding and standing, as some people say, standing as consciousness. You know, take your stand as consciousness, take your stand as awareness. Talking about this is really an essential part of it, not thinking you have to be ashamed of it or hide your spiritual journey. So in other words, you want to be around people who are appreciative and supportive of your spiritual journey. That's what you're yeah, saying. and you of theirs. Mutuality in that. What's the third one? Find stillness beyond thinking. Yeah, so that's, you can, there are many paths to the sun, right? Many rays. So meditation, letting go, different techniques that quiet the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, stillness is always here. It's not like it's not. It, we don't have a choice. It's behind and in between. 
all sound and vibration, and it's out of which vibration appears. And so it's here. It's what I would call the infinite potentiality of all. So it's it's this unformed. So practice giving yourself moments of it because I think it's like drinking from the well. It's really important. The next one is from the soup Nazi. Taste the quantum soup. You know, I never saw that episode of. Oh, was, oh, he was in a lot of episodes. In, in, it's it's referring to Seinfeld. There was this soup Nazi, and and he, you know, he would stand in line. He'd be really strict, and people would come up for soup, and he'd say, "No soup for you." <laughs> right, right. So yeah, so quantum soup is the idea. It's hard to use words about it, but it's the idea that there is no fixed entity or fixedness in all existence because everything is a continual conflagration of appearing particles out of the waveform of infinity and timeless space into atoms, subatomic particles, molecules, and this appearance. But none of this is fixed, never has been. So even a thought is not representing a fixed reality. Even a thought is remembered, or memory is remembered only on certain levels of what actually happens. So to invest and give authority to the idea that what's now is fixed is not being open to what's potentially a really exciting or resolution-oriented moment. So the quantum soup is staying open to the unfolding infinite elements of this moment without fixing a mental mindset and taking away the opportunity of it being better than it is or more resolved or more loving or whatever. Reminds me of something that Brian Swim said as a physicist that the, the Big Bang isn't just something that happened 13.7 billion years ago, it's something that is continually happening, you know, that the universe is just sort of manifesting out of this infinite um, ocean of potentiality at, at every moment. Mm -hmm. And why is this relevant, you know, in this conversation? It's relevant because if your work at Buddha at the gas pump is, by the way, it's a great title, if all of this is about exploring awakening, and I love your title of awakening people, not awakened, because another. I used to have it as awakened and I changed it because I realized that was not right. No, and for this exact reason, there is this, this unfoldment continually. Mm -hmm. And so life, if life is considered that way, we don't even get to hold on to fear because we're fearing something we're imagining, a fixed image. Let that go and everything unfolds and you align with a better unfoldment if you do so with your heart open, with less fixed mindsets and thoughts. So this opening of, of awakening is awakening to the perfect unfoldment of the universe. Mm. As I be quiet and listen, I see sunlight pouring across the New York skyline and, and on my shirt beneath the camera. And I'm aware that this moment is absolutely rich. And that's why I wrote the book, The Ocean of Now. There's a misnomer even in the word now because it refers to a now or then, right? Or then or... And there's actually not even an end to the now. Even that's a mistaken understanding of the continuum or the non-space-time-based existence. So in this moment right now, as people are listening or watching, I really invite you to listen to this moment without projecting onto it anything, without wanting to know what I mean, without wondering about what time it is, or if those thoughts come, let them come and let them go and experiencing what it means, really literally, to simply be, not even be present, but be this unfoldment. Imagine the body unfolding, 
you know, the trillion cells replacing itself every second. Just imagine the reality of that, that this form that you can see on the video is actually not a fixed entity. It's trillions of cells are disappearing and new ones are coming in. We can't fathom it. So the only thing that I would say, Rick, in answer to your question is that to me, everything we've said in this very fun and enjoyable interview with you refers back to this unfoldment of now, which can have emotions in it. There's no picture of even what this is supposed to be like. But the acceptance of it or the unconditional place in which it's occurring or unconditionality, that's the celebration. Not just the thing that's appearing, but that in which it's appearing, that's the celebration of any word you choose to give it. So I think anything else that I would want to say right now is gratitude. Thank you for, for this opportunity to talk with you and be with others. That's what came to mind when you asked. Good. And I would just throw something in here, although that was a very good ending, and maybe we'll even cut this off, but um, you know, edit out what I'm about to say. But we were watching an old Dustin Hoffman movie last night, and um, he, he played an armed robber who had just gotten out of jail and then was getting back into crime and all, and he was hanging around and interacting with these various people. And I was thinking, golly, you know, there are a lot of people out there whose existence is so bleak and whose sort of appreciation of what's going on is so... I don't want to say stunted, sort of um, dry and, and without any kind of fulfillment or uninspired, I mean, throwing in the word. And I was thinking, hopefully there is some kind of global awakening taking place, because it's painful to think of the billions of people living such an unfulfilled existence. I mean, if you, and if you look at the statistics of the number of people in the United States who take various kinds of mood-altering drugs, you know, in order to get by and that kind of thing, and you, you can trust that with the, the joy and the, the fulfillment that probably you and I would both say we are living, and many of the people watching this having pursued spiritual development for so many years. It inspires me to encourage people to give their attention to this. And we're probably preaching to the choir here because the people watching this already are doing that. And, and this is part of the, my motivation for doing this show. The more people can sort of turn their attention to the, the joy and the wonder that is so rich in every moment of living and actually begin to live that, the better it will be for them and for the world as a whole. I would be in agreement. And so again, if we return to this present moment as you're speaking, I feel a tenderness in my heart, a little bit of sadness, mm -hmm. right? And I feel yours in a way. It would be a pity or a tragedy for the human species to not be able to experience this happiness, which is possible, or, or contentment, or love. And so you bring up a point that I've been thinking about the last couple of days about creating a video about or something, which is we read and see negativity in general. That's what the news is for the most part. And yet what I'm really conscious of, especially living in New York City with 8 million people, if I were really to film all of the kind acts that took place, they would explode the news. They would explode all news stations. They would explode the Internet because consciousness is still yearning and it will always yearn to expand right to grow and the amount of love that i see also if i would love to videotape how many times a door was open for somebody or somebody helped someone up a subway step or they let somebody else go first or somebody gave somebody on the street something 
their last dollar or so I, I just want to put out there that I'm in agreement. These are dark times in many ways. The earth is being plundered, climate, fear and greed and all those things. But I would also invite everybody that's listening in context of what you're saying, Rick, to stay open to this possibility of the infinite acts of kindness right now that are happening, that humanity is not lost in that sense. And it's, it's heartening for me to remember that. And so I hope people are on a journey of love and kindness and spirituality, but there's also this ground swell of kindness which humanity still has towards itself. I saw a, a Muslim woman that went to a, a rally for the Republican leader. I don't even really love saying his name, but, and she was the only one in the audience and he kicked her out. But she spoke on CNN afterwards or some news station and she said, I just went because I believe they don't know who I am and I don't know who they are and if we did this would all change. And she said there were so many people that said I'm sorry this is happening to you as she was walked out. Was she causing a fuss or did he just kick her out because she was Muslim? She stood up and she just stood up while he was speaking. Uh -huh. That was her statement. Uh -huh. And uh, people around her were shaking her hand and they liked her. People were nice. Unfortunately, in certain arenas, people's emotions are hijacked and then utilized in politics a lot. She was beautiful and eloquent. She was a stewardess, basically. She, was, she just practiced Islam. And she stood there and people were kind to her. And she said, that's all I wanted to know and to show, is that even amidst this fear attitude, the human heart remains available. That's the spirituality, is the human heart you know, whatever path we choose to follow. Nice. Well, let's end it on that note, because that's a sweet note. So let me just make a few concluding remarks. I've been speaking with David Elzey, as you know, and his website is davidelzeyelzey.com, and I'll be linking to it from his page on batgap.com. And uh, there also, as I said in the beginning, you'll see all the other, uh, other interviews I've done archived and categorized in various ways, a place to sign up for the audio podcast, a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new one is posted, the donate button, and a bunch of other things if you search around a little bit. Thank you, David. Thanks to those who have been listening or watching. And for those who have been watching live, we'll be, we'll be splicing in a few of David's mime routines, maybe the one from Sand where he did Rumi or something. Well, David will decide what he wants to splice into the conversation. So you might want to watch this again in order to catch those. And you, you must have also some of that stuff on YouTube, right? And on your website? Yeah. yeah. You can go to YouTube or Vimeo and just put in my name and you'll find my channel. Yeah, I think you, people will enjoy watching those. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Yeah. And there's some on my site too. If you go to watch, listen, my site has some videos that are about these topics. So. Great. Thanks, Rick. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. So we'll see you in October, if not sooner. Sand Conference. All right. Great. Thanks. Pleasure.